we certainly can rejoice greatly in knowing the things that God cannot do. When you first hear something like that, you may think, you mean there's something God cannot do? Well, a number of things. He, Brother Tim presented to us this morning, he cannot lie, he cannot change, he cannot deny himself. All the things that God cannot do are things that, unfortunately, I do. I change. I deny myself sometimes. Unfortunately, during my lifetime, I'm guilty of telling a lie. How about you? Aren't you glad that God cannot do those things that we're so prone to do? And because of that, then indeed we do have hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. He didn't promise to everybody in general, nobody in particular. He promised it to a definite number of people that he personally foreknew individually, personally, before time ever began. And eternal life is that gift that God gives to his children. It's not an offer, it's a gift. I appreciate the thoughts this morning. Uh, in the book of John, the Gospel of John, we find where the Lord Jesus Christ was engaged in a conversation uh, with the Jewish people at that time. And uh, they had brought up the subject of Abraham in their discussions with the Lord. Finally, toward the end, in verse 58, the Lord told them that Abraham rejoiced to see his day and was glad of it. And they responded by saying, well, you're not yet 50 years of age. How is it Abraham could have seen your day? The people that Jesus interacted with, it's recorded in John's Gospel, and you go back to the very beginning, you'll find that their first inclination was to accept what Jesus said from a literal, natural point of view. Go with Nicodemus, the woman by the well, etc. Take a look at all these different chapters, all these different people. But the Lord always had something far greater under consideration than that. The Lord had something spiritual and eternal under consideration. And he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad of it. And they said, well, you're not yet 50 years old. How is it that Abraham could see your day? He said, before Abraham was, I am. And when he told them that, they picked up stones to stone him with. And on several occasions, they did that. Another time is in John chapter 10, when the Lord said, I know my sheep, they hear my voice, and they follow me, and I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And they shall, no man shall pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man can pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Lord was teaching election. The Lord was teaching eternal security. The Lord was teaching preservation of the saints. And what did they do? How was their response? They picked up stones to stone him with. Uh, I hope none of you brought in in your pockets here this morning because I just quoted what the Lord got stoned for, both in John chapter 8 and John chapter 10. These are truths that we hold to. These are truths we embrace. These are truths that mean a lot to us. These are truths that we rejoice in this morning. Now, a number of people in the Old Testament are referred to in the New Testament, but no one near as often as Moses, Abraham, and David. Moses is referred to in the New Testament 80 times. Now, as you read the New Testament, you may not realize that, but if you read from Matthew to end of the book of Revelation, you'd read Moses' name 80 times. And you would have read Abraham's name 74 times. And you'd read David's name 59 times. Now, by contrast, you only read the name of Jonah 
a couple of times. And Noah, you might thought he'd be referred to more than he is, but I think Noah's mentioned uh, three times. So for David mentioned 59 times, and Abraham 74 times, and Moses 80 times, that tells me these are three of the most important men in Old Testament history, especially concerning the Jewish religion and the Jewish people. Obviously, Moses was given the law uh, by God who gave it to the people. And God chose Moses to bring his people out of the land of Egypt, deliver them out of the land of Egypt across the Red Sea and through the wilderness. Abraham was known as the father of the Jewish people. He is the father of the Hebrews. So you can understand that. And of course, David was a man after God's own heart. He was the first king of Israel that God chose. Now, he was king number two. The first king was a king, King Saul, but that was the people's choice. David was God's choice. And as you study their lives, it becomes very clear as to why they were mentioned, we mentioned so many times over here in the New Testament. The life of Abraham comes to us beginning in chapter 12 of Genesis, and his death is recorded in chapter 25. That's 14 chapters. His life is covered for us in 14 chapters in the middle of the book of Genesis. But yet, his name is recorded in 27 books of the 66 books of the Bible. His name is listed in 11 books of the New Testament and 16 books of the Old Testament. So while his life is brought to our attention in these 14 chapters in the book of Genesis, things about his life are sprinkled throughout the Word of God. So a very important character. Now the day I believe that the Lord had reference to, I think is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 22. It would be the supreme test that God gave Abraham to pass. But oftentimes in our lives, God gives us smaller tests to prepare us for larger tests, for a bigger test. And perhaps you've had some testing along the way. Certainly Abraham did. And there are certain things in Abraham's life where he was tested and some tests he passed and some of them he didn't. I doubt anybody here this morning can raise your hand and say, well, I think I've passed every test that God's given me in my lifetime. Everything that's come along my way, well, I've just passed it with flying colors. Um, I seriously doubt that. You know, we do withdraw fellowship for people that lie. So anyway, I doubt very seriously that anybody would say that this morning. So let's take a look at Abraham's life briefly leading up to Genesis chapter 22 to see what he may have had in consideration when he spoke this to the Jewish people. When you go back to Genesis chapter 12, we find where Abraham's name is actually Abram. He lived in a land called Ur of the Chaldees. It was a land of great idolatry. Abraham was there. And God, in his sovereign pleasure, sovereign will, reached down from heaven and touched his life and told him to get out of his land, get out from his family and from his kindred. There were three things Abraham was supposed to separate himself from in this in this command of God. We come over to Hebrews chapter 11, the eighth verse, it says, by faith. Now, I want you to notice this. Abram had faith when he was in the land of the earth of the Chaldees. Faith is not something he acquired later on. He had it down the land of the earth of the Chaldees because he's going to obey God by faith. And I want you to remember this verse this morning, found in 1 John 5 and 4, when the apostle John said that whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is our victory, even our faith that overcometh the world. 
Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Now he says, the faith that we have enables us to overcome the world. You're going to see that displayed brilliantly in the life of Abraham. Are you going to see a perfect life? Are you going to see a sinless life? Are you going to see a life without fear? You know, you're not going to see that in Abraham. But you're going to see a consistency in this man's life. From the very beginning, beginning back in Genesis chapter 12 once again. So what did Abraham do? Well, Abraham left that land. He obeyed God by faith. In the first three verses of Genesis chapter 12, you find the word blessed or blessing five times. Abraham may have not known exactly where he was going, and he did not. The Lord said, I want you to go to land that I'm going to show you. He had never been to that land. He'd never seen that land. He didn't know what to expect. But you know, in our obedience to the Lord, we shouldn't always look for explanations. We just need to trust the promises of God. If God has promised it, we just trust it. It'll all be shown us as time goes on, as we take step by step by step. And so Abraham leaves the land of the the Chaldees, for God told him, he said, I'm going to, you go to land that I will show thee, and I will bless thee, and I'll make a, a nation out of thee. He says, and in thee and thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Five times you find that word blessed. So Abraham knew blessings were in store. He didn't know what they would be exactly, but they would be in store. So Abraham did that. You might say he passed the family test. <laughs> the Lord told him he's to separate himself from the land of his nativity. He was to separate himself from family, separate himself from his kindred. Now, Abraham didn't do that 100% because he brought his nephew Lot with him, which would cause some problems a little bit later on. Now, God will reveal himself to Abraham during his lifetime here in different ways, depending upon his experiences. Look over here in the 13th chapter in the book of Genesis, and you'll find where there's going to be a battle of the kings. You're going to find, excuse me, before we get into that, in chapter 13, I'm going to take a look at an experience he did have with Lot here. Now, Lot is his nephew. And we're going to find that they both had such large herds of cattle and sheep and everything that there became a strife among the herdmen. And Abraham tells Lot that this should not be. He says, we be brethren. And what a verse that is to be applied throughout history. There should be no strife with brethren. There should be no strife in a family. There should be no strife in the house of God. See, this should not be. So Abraham, showing the gracious man that he is, he says, just take a look at the land out here, Lot, and you can have your choices. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. How much more accommodating can you be than that? Well, the Bible says that Lot looked out, and he saw the well-watered plains of Jordan. And he would wind up pitching his tent toward the city of Sodom. As we continue to study, we find that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were given over to great immorality. They were known for sodomy. That's homosexuality. They were given over to it. God will eventually burn those cities to a crisp, burn those cities to the ground. But as soon as Lot separated, and this is an important point, as soon as Abraham separated himself from Lot, no longer is Lot in his life, he passed that test. I know he loved Lot. We'll find that out a little bit later on. Then we're going to find where the Lord tells Abraham to lift up his eyes. Now, four different times, God's going to tell Abraham to lift his eyes up. I want you to notice as we go along there what he saw each time. 
lift up your eyes. And he says, and look to the north, the south, the east, and the west. He says, all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your seed. He gave Abraham far more than Abraham gave up, did he not? I want you to remember that principle this morning, that you, you never give up anything what God will more than compensate for it. Remember Ephesians 3 and 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think according to the power that worketh at us. Oh, that's, that's a verse that I just feel like I need to quote every day in my life. Now unto him that is able, God is able to do what? To do exceedingly abundantly above all I ask or think according to the power that worketh in me. And that's resurrection power. So Abraham gave Lot his choice of the land, and we see what Lot did with it. And then God comes to Abraham after he separated himself from Lot. He says, now I want you to lift up your eyes and look. From a natural perspective, he says, your seed's going to occupy this land. I'm going to give you this land. He's talking about the land of Canaan, the promised land. I'm going to give you this land right here, and to your seed, they're going to inherit this land. I think Abraham came out on top, don't you? <laughs> I think he did. And then you come to chapter 14, and you find, well, there's going to be a battle of nine kings, five kings here and four kings over here. The, five, the four kings do battle against the five kings, and they actually wind up winning the battle. Lot happened to be in the city of Sodom down there, and he's one of the five kings that got defeated, and Lot and his family and his goods are taken into captivity. Abraham, we're told, takes his servants, 318 of them, hired, uh, excuse me, trained servants, not soldiers. Abraham did not have an army. Abraham did not have soldiers. But he makes up an army of trained servants, 318 servants. Now, I don't know how many uh, people was in the army of those four kings. I got a feeling it was more than 318. Wouldn't you say so? I mean, four kings put them together in their armies. I don't know how many it was, but Abraham's going to go and he's going to get Lot and bring him back home with his goods and his family. And God blesses him to do so. He goes out, he does battle with these four kings who defeated the five kings. And he brings Lot back home, brings his family back home, brings his goods back home. And on the way back home, he's met by two, two kings. He's met by the king of Sodom. He's met by a king called Melchizedek. Now, the king of Sodom was worldly. He was carnal. And when he comes where Abraham's at, he says, you give me the persons and you take the goods. I don't know where he comes from when he hadn't even been out to do the battle. Uh, he was taken in battle and that Abraham was gone and, and won everything back. And all of a sudden he wants part of it. He says, give me the persons and you take the goods. And that's what the king of Sodom did when he approached Abraham on his way back. But then there's another king that approaches Abraham. His name is Melchizedek. Melchizedek's not only recorded here in Genesis 14. He's recorded in Psalms 110. He's recorded in Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 7. Numerous places throughout the Bible where you find Melchizedek. Melchizedek, one of the most interesting characters you're going to read about in Scripture. The Bible says concerning him, without father, without mother, without descent. He was a king of righteousness. He was a king of Salem. And he bought bread and wine and gave it to Abraham. Now notice that King Melchizedek does not ask anything from Abraham. He gives to Abraham. 
in contrast, what the king of Sodom did. A lot of people trying to figure out who Melchizedek was. Somebody says, well, he was Shem. That's a, that's a common theory. Well, if he was Shem, I know who Shem's father was. It was Noah. So I think we mark him out, okay? And then somebody says, well, he was a celestial being. He was an angel. Well, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4 makes this statement. Let's consider how great this man was. If he was a man, he wasn't an angel. He wasn't a celestial being. Somebody says, well, it was uh, the Lord Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. Well, as we read these different references concerning Melchizedek and the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll find where the Bible says that Jesus Christ's priesthood was after the order of Melchizedek. That's two different people. Melchizedek was not the Lord Jesus Christ. Melchizedek was a real person who appears on the scene. We're given limited information about him, but the information we're given here tells me he's a picture and a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without mother, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, had no mother but a father. Without father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, had a mother but no biological father. He brought both bread and wine. Does that remind you of anything? When we have communion, what do we have? We have bread and wine, right? And the bread represents the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless nature of the Savior. The wine does the very same thing, representing to us a sinless, perfect, holy, righteous life. That ought to remind us of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a king of righteousness and the king of Salem. The word Salem means peace. Salem is part of the word Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He's a king of peace, king of righteousness. All right, now the Lord Jesus Christ is the super king of righteousness, is he not? He's referred to in the book of Jeremiah as the Lord our righteousness. In 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, the apostle Paul says, for he became sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteous of God in him. Thank God for the king of righteousness. He's referred to in Isaiah 9, 6 as the Prince of Peace. No, the Prince of Peace, he's the King of Peace. He's the King of Jerusalem. Now, in Psalms 85 and 10, the writer tells us that righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Mercy and truth have met each other. And truth shall spring out of the earth. Jesus Christ is truth personified. And he sprung out of this earth from the standpoint of his virgin birth. And in his virgin birth and his life and finally his work on the cross, we find mercy and truth meeting together in the person of Jesus. We find righteousness and peace meeting together in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Melchizedek, yes, he was a man that was great. Remember Hebrews 7, 4, let's consider how great this man was. That word great is used with the Lord Jesus Christ and his priesthood and with no other priest. Hebrews 4 and 14. Seeing that we have such a great high priest who's passed into the heavens, let us hold fast our profession of faith and let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Melchizedek is a wonderful, wonderful character to study. And uh, the sad thing when he's brought to the attention of the Hebrews in the book of Hebrews, you go to the last part of Hebrews chapter 5, the apostle tells the Hebrews, he says, you know, uh, you should be now able to be teachers of other people. He said, but you still stand in need of milk and not meat. And because of that, I'm going to have to stop my study on Melchizedek and go back to some basics with you. <laughs> See, the Lord's people ought to grow. And one of the themes in the book of Hebrews is reaching spiritual Christian maturity. Maturity. 
Now, just because somebody's old doesn't make them mature. Do you know that? Age doesn't bring guaranteed maturity. Have you ever seen somebody who on up in life, been an adult for a good many years, and you might think, he's just never going to grow up. <laughs> he's just never going to grow up. You ever met anybody like that? You know anybody like that? I can name a few. But anyway, he's just never going to grow up. They never seem to mature. They get older. You're going to get older. You don't even have to do anything to get older. Just protect yourself. You know, I, for a long time, I restricted myself, or restrained myself from going to the senior tee when I wanted to play around a golf. Pride, I suppose. But anyway, I just, you know, I was eligible for it. I'm going to tell myself here, man, careful, got to be careful my words here. I was eligible for it, but finally I decided this. Well, I might as well take advantage of it. I've lived long enough to earn it. But even I didn't earn that. It's through the providence of God I made it to the point where I, where I qualified to get down to the, to the level of the other T. Now, just because you get older don't make you mature. And the Hebrews were so immature that Paul had to stop his writings and study on Melchizedek to go back to the very basic things. That's who met him. Now let's go back to what, how Abraham responded to the king of Sodom. He says, give me the persons you keep the goods. He said, I will not take from a thread to a shoe latchet or anything else you have I will not take. He says, I serve the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. I'll not take my thread to a shoe latchet or anything else you've got, lest you should say you made Abraham rich. That's a noble statement, isn't it? I, mean, I think we began to learn a few things about Abraham and his experiences, are we not? So here's how chapter 15 opens up. It says, the Lord appeared unto Abraham and told Abraham, he says, I am thy shield and thy, great, thy exceeding great reward. See how that goes back to what I've just said from the 14th chapter there. He said, I'm your reward. Abraham gave up. See, usually if you're in a battle and you win the battle, the spoils go to the victor. Abraham wasn't interested in becoming rich. Abraham was interested in getting Lot, his family, and his goods and bringing them back home safely. That's what Abraham was interested in. He wasn't interested in taking anything from a carnal, worldly-minded man like the king of Sodom. The Lord says to him, then, I'm your reward. He says, I'm your shield and your exceeding great reward. Now, he already proved he was his shield. A shield is for protection. That's why, you know, in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, we're told to put on the whole armor of God. What's one of those pieces of armor we're told to put on? It says, above all things, the shield of faith. To do what? That you might quench the fiery darts of the wicked. The wicked of this world are firing fiery darts at me and at you and all God's people and everybody trying to live godly in Christ Jesus to try to sidetrack them and injure them and get them to fall off the wagon, so to speak. But if you've got that shield right there, you can protect yourself. And the Lord says, I'm your shield. He'd already proven it in the battle of the kings. Again, what was the size of Abraham's army? Not trained soldiers, trained servants, 318 of them. Only God could have blessed him to win such a victory as that. He'd already proven to him. Abraham already had the experience, right? But what if those kings decided to regroup? And, you know, what they decided to we got to get back together. We got to recruit a few other kings, one thing or another. We're coming back after this guy. Well, the Lord says, don't worry about it, Abraham. I'm your shield. <laughs> I'm your protection. That word shield is used numerous times in the book of Psalms. As David writes those, most of those psalms, not all of them, most of those psalms, he used the word shield over and over again in the psalm. He says, Thou art my shield and my buckler, my fortress, my high tower. 
You're my protection. You're my refuge, in other words, is what David is saying. The Lord says to Abraham here, and see how appropriate it is for him to say, I'm your reward and your exceeding great, uh, I mean, I'm your shield and your exceeding great reward. See how appropriate it was for him to say that at this particular time in Abraham's experience? How does Abraham respond to that? Abraham's got his mind on airship. He said, what will thou give me, seeing I go childless? At this time, Abraham has no child. He doesn't even have Ishmael yet. He has Ishmael when he's uh, about 86 years old. He doesn't even have Ishmael yet. He does not have a child. He's getting to be an older man. An older man. You see, I was thinking about this the other day. You know, when it talks about age in the Bible, as you heard me say numerous times, the Bible has nothing said about middle age, just young and old. But I've been looking, I find in stages of, of these, stages of young and stages of old. There's old, there's old well-stricken years, and there's aged. <laughs> so you've got to figure which group you're in over here, which category are you in. And then when it comes to over here, you've got young, you've got youth, in other words, I break it down into very young and young and not as young. So right now, I'm not as young. Okay? Now, now we got that settled. Everybody's clear about that. All right? Now, over a lifetime, it's three things that a man is supposed to always have with him. It's always important. He's to have a pocket knife, he's to have a handkerchief, and he's to have a comb. I've used these three. I've carried these three. My, almost my entire life. And that handkerchief comes in handy. That knife comes in handy. The comb, not so much anymore. Now, if I forget my comb, five fingers does the job. Okay? Anyway, we find here that God tells Abraham, I am that reward and that, and that uh, I am that shield and that exceeding great reward. Abraham says, What shall I do seeing I go childless? And he looks around and he says, Eliezer, my servant, he, he'll be my heir. God says, no, he's not going to be your heir, Abraham. There's going to be one that's going to come from you. Your seed shall be your heir. Not Eliezer, not your servant. And the Bible says that Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted on him for righteousness sake. A lot of people like to take that verse right there in the Armenian world, in the conditional salvation world, we might say, and say, this is the very time Abraham believed and became God's child. I've already showed you Abraham had faith when he's in the land of the earth of the Chaldees. A number of years before that. Has nothing to do with his eternal standing or his position with God when it says that. None whatsoever. He believed God, though, and God counted. The word count is a uh, accounting term. And he put it on the ledge on the side of Abraham here for something God was pleased with. So then God tells Abraham to take the second look. Abraham looks up. What's he see this time? He says, look toward heaven. The first time he says, look out to the north, south, east, and west, and I'll give you and your seed this land. That's from the standpoint of his natural offspring. But now we're talking about something better than that. We're talking about Christ. He's talking about the seed that's going to come through him. That's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, look toward heaven. He says, look toward the stars and tell me what you see. Tell me what you see then. He says, you're going to see the stars, which shall be emblematic of the seed that shall come from thee. And he says, this seed that shall come through thee, all the nations there shall be blessed because of it. So that's the second look Abraham looks at. 
Let's move over here to Genesis chapter 17. In chapter 17, God reveals himself to Abraham, this time as the Almighty God. And if we're reading this chapter, you'll understand why. He's going to do some things for Abraham. He's going to take the Almighty God to be able to do it. Nothing less than the Almighty God could do what he's going to do for Abraham in Genesis 17. That term is used, I think, seven or eight times in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 1.8, Jesus says it about himself. He says, I'm the Almighty God, which is, which was, and which is to come. He was Almighty in the past, He's Almighty in the present, He'll be Almighty in the future. You'll find it uh, either seven or eight times in other places in the book of Revelation. He appears to Abraham as the Almighty God. He changes Abraham's name from Abram to Abraham, which means father of nations. And then he changes his wife's name from Sarah to Sarah, which means mother of nations. In both cases, he says, and king shall come forth out of these nations. How is that going to be? <laughs> How is that going to be? Now, at this time, he does have Ishmael. But the Lord says, I'm going to make a covenant with you and your seed after you. He's talking about Isaac. And Abraham is so got away with when the Lord says, you're going to have a child and Sarah's going to conceive and bring forth a son. He says, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. Now he turns to Ishmael. The Lord says, not Ishmael. <laughs> now he said, I'll respect you, Abraham. I'll make Ishmael a father. of uh, He'll become a prince of 12 nations. 12 sons, 12 princes. That was, you know, grace to Abraham to do that. Remember, Abraham now has Ishmael through Hagar. He still does not have a son through Sarah. But Sarah's going to become the mother of many nations. That means she's going to have to have a child. Abraham laughs about this to begin with. He says, oh, the Ishmael might live before thee. The Lord says, no, not Ishmael. First of all, it was Eliezer, right, when he, concerning being an heir. And by the way, uh, back then in that chapter, Abraham has heirship and sonship under consideration. If he has no son, the inheritance cannot be obtained. So what's, how's he going to get that? In the Bible, you're referred to by different names. But one of the names you're referred to is heir, H-E-I-R. Heir. Did you know you're an heir of God? Look at Romans 8, 16 and 17. Paul says, for the Spirit bears witness our spirit that we are the children of God, or the sons of God, and sons of God, then children of God. If children of God, then heirs of God, and joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're an heir of God. You're a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can assure you, that what God has in store for you, for you to inherit, is going to come your way. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, we have an inheritance, the incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Compare that inheritance to an earthly inheritance. This inheritance here cannot be defiled. This inheritance right here cannot uh, fade away. This inheritance right here will remain eternal forevermore. You see, Abraham knew when he turned down that offer from the king of Sodom, he knew he had a substance in heaven that was far more enduring than anything that you'll ever experience here in this earth. Always remember that. Remember, my friends, you will never give up anything that God will not overcome that and bless you with because he that honors God, God will honor him. It reminds me uh, in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 25 right now. In this chapter, you're going to find where the king of Judah was going to go out to battle and he hired 100,000 soldiers from the king of Israel. But the prophet came to him and told him, God said, do not take them with you because I will not bless. He paid them 100 talents of silver. 
Any king says, well, what am I going to do? I've already paid them. <laughs> what shall I do about the hundred talents of silver? And the prophet said to him, God is able. God is able to give you far more than this. You believe that this morning? <laughs> God is able to give you far more than, than that. And so the king gave in and he sent them all back home thinking he lost his hundred uh, talents of silver. His grandson, two chapters later, will follow him and the Lord will bless his grandson to get those hundred talents of silver back along uh, with uh, uh, an abundant amount of barley and an abundant amount of wheat. He got far more back than what he gave up. We live in this old world. We have to deal with the natural man all the time. We have to deal with our carnal nature. We have to deal with natural thinking, natural reasoning. But I'm going to tell you, the faith of Abraham is going to be so strong and so great, it will overcome all of those things. In this chapter also, God tells Abraham as a symbol of this covenant that I'm going to make with you and your seed, you're all, all the males will be circumcised. Abraham was circumcised at 99 years old. Ishmael was circumcised at 13 years old. All the males at that time in, the, you know, in Abraham's family and whatever, they were all circumcised. Now, I ain't talking about before they ever left the hospital. I'm talking about Abraham at 99 years old. Abraham obeyed. Abraham did what the Lord told him to do. And then we come over here to chapter 22. Now, between chapter 17 and chapter 22, it came to pass exactly what God told him. He says, Sarah's going to have a child at this set time, by the way. Let me emphasize this. At this set time, that's S-E-T, at this set time next year, as I have stated. One year later, at the very time that God had stated the time, Sarah had conceived and Sarah brought forth a son and called his name Isaac, just like God said that she would. This is the promised child. This is the promised seed. This is a child Abraham thought he would never get. See, when God made that promise in chapter 17 in Genesis, I come over to Romans chapter 4 to pick up uh, the New Testament narrative on it, and you'll find where we're told over here that Abraham was, was strong in faith. It says, not considering his body, which is already dead, nor the deadness of Sarah's womb. God brought life out of something that was dead. God brought the life of Isaac out of a dead womb, out of a dead man, Abraham and Sarah were living, but they were dead from the standpoint of having the ability to bring forth children in this world. And God brought a child out of it. Now, uh, that, he says, Abraham staggered not at the promises of God. I love that expression. <laughs> Abraham staggered not at the promise of God. Here's a promise, as far as I'm concerned, is one to stagger at. I'm telling you, I, I got a ways to go before I get to be 99. But if God came to me in my days of my youth, <laughs> and told me, hey, you, you and Karen are going to have a child. I'm telling you, she'd have to pick me up off the floor. She'd just have to pick me right up off the floor, and then I, uh, I'd have to call and get somebody to pick her up off the floor, I guess. That's a staggering promise, but Abraham didn't stagger at it. Abraham believed the word of God. He believed what God said. He didn't understand how it could come to pass, how he, with a dead body, his wife, with a dead womb, could have a child. But it came to pass just like God said. Now we come over here to chapter 22. And here's going to become the supreme test in the life of Abraham. I believe this is exactly the experience that Jesus had in consideration in John 8, 58. When he says that... Uh, you know, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad in it. 
God says unto Abraham, he says, and after these things, this is how the chapter opens up, after these things. Most of the time you read an expression like that, you go to the previous chapter. But here I think you've got to go all the way back to the first chapter of Abraham's life in Genesis chapter 12. After all these things, and I've just hit the highlights of a few things in Abraham's life. From Genesis 12 through Genesis 21, after all these things, we come to chapter 22, and God says unto Abraham, Abraham, speaks to him personally, says, Abraham, you take thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest, and you take him to Moriah, and you take him to a mountain there, Moriah, that I will tell thee of. Now, it's just impossible, I'm sure, for us to fully comprehend the feelings and emotions that were going through Abraham's mind, heart, and soul at this time. This son, this son that I had when it was impossible nature to have, you want me to take my son, my only son, that's mentioned three times in Genesis chapter 22 in this way? I hope you can see how that points us to the Lord Jesus Christ and God sent his only son. John chapter 3 verse 16, for God so loved the world, that is the world of his children in distinction of the world of Adam's race. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Galatians 4, 4, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Romans 8, 32, but God who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, that we should, uh, that he might freely give us all things. That's the son, this son is a picture of right here. Abraham thinks this is a miracle son, this is a promised son, this is a promised seed. This is a seed in which all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. If I take him up there and make an, uh, offer him on, on an altar, how are these things going to come to pass? And then things must have gone through the mind of Abraham. He was just as human as you and I are. It must have gone through his mind. But we find where Abraham does not hesitate. We find where Abraham gets up early in the morning. And here, here's his preparation. He saddles the ass. He takes two, two men's servants. He takes Isaac. He takes a knife, he takes fire, and he takes wood. And they begin the journey. It's going to be a three-day journey. You remember that? It's going to be a three-day journey. We're not told what happens on day one or happens on day two. But on day three, it said Abraham lifted up his eyes. Remember, this is the third time he lifted up his eyes. What's he see this time? He sees where he's going. He sees Mount Moriah. He's getting closer and closer. It's the third day. It is the third day. And then Abraham tells the two that was with him, he says, you stay here while I and the lad go yonder and worship and return to you. Abraham never had the thought he's going to bring back a dead corpse with him. I'm sure of that. You wait here while I and the lad go yonder. Yonder is that mountain in Mount Moriah where he's going to have to offer his son until you wait here until we come back here. While I and the lad go yonder and worship. Notice how Abraham considered this act of obedience to God's command was an act of worship. So they begin to go off. We notice here there's just two of them now. Abraham and his son. The transaction is going to take place on Mount Moriah between Abraham and his son. We find where as they start up Mount Moriah... That his son Isaac, the wood is put on, on, put on Isaac's back. Isaac's going to carry this wood. When I read about the Lord Jesus Christ, I find where he carried his cross for a ways. But then they compelled a man by the name of Simon the Cyrenian to take 
the cross that was on the back of Jesus and carry it the rest of the way. So when I think about that, it seems like the type doesn't all work out. I think the wood represents something else here. I think it represents what God put on Christ on our behalf. You go to Isaiah chapter 53, it says he laid upon him, laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Our transgressions, our iniquities, what was laid on the back of the Lord Jesus Christ. He took it in his own body to the tree of the cross. And that's just the two of them. Now those two that was left down there, two is the number of witness. When the Lord Jesus Christ is crucified on Calvary, there's two being crucified with him, right? There are two thieves there. One on one side and one on the other. But from 12 to 3, there's darkness. Christ is on the cross from 9 to 3. The last three hours are the hours of darkness. Those two thieves, even though they're very close physically to the Lord Jesus Christ, cannot see the transaction taking place between the Father and the Son. Nobody's going to see the transaction on top of Mount Moriah is going to take place except Abraham and his son Isaac. It's between them and nobody else. So they go up that mountain. You find that it's the third day, and in the beginning you're going to find where Abraham separates Isaac. You go to Exodus chapter 12, you're going to find on the day of Passover that the lamb had to be separated four days before it's offered by the high priest. Isaac separated. He's going to be the offering, supposedly. According to God's command, he separated three days before it's going to happen. I'm going to tell you this morning that the Lord Jesus Christ was separated from all eternity to come in this world and do what he did. In the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verse 8, it speaks about the Lamb's book of life, of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ was slain about 4,000 years at the beginning of time. His beginning of time, his 4,000 years, and here's 2,000 years that's gone by. I believe, I believe in a very young earth. I believe in a 6,000-year-old earth. I don't believe in an earth that's been here for billions of years. So we're 2,000 years away from the crucifixion. But I'm going to tell you what took place on the cross, my friends. The benefits of that death, what it accomplished 2,000 years ago, was being applied to the Lord's family 4,000 years before that. Because Christ stood in their room in their stead as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He was separated from, from time before time ever began. And so they go up that mountain to Mount Moriah. And they get there. Now, I don't know how, how old Isaac was, but uh, the chronologists of the Bible are going to put him about 20 years of age. On the way up there, Abraham hears a question that had to pierce his soul coming from his son Isaac. Isaac says, Father, he says, here I am. He said, I see the wood, I see the fire, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac has no idea at this time he is the one that's supposed to be on that wood. How do you think that made the heart of Abraham feel when his son asked him that question? But here's his answer. Abraham says, God shall provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Abraham believed that. Somehow, some way, that was going to happen. But I'm telling you, that was a statement that had a, a, an impact way down the road. I look in John 1, and John the Baptist sees the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Notice, it did not say that God uh, provided a lamb. It says God shall provide himself a lamb for burnt offering, which means God made the provision. He, he uh, set aside the lamb and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as an offering for him and to him. 
He has a double meaning, in other words. For him and to him. God sent forth his son as an offering, a sacrifice. And he made the offering to him. When he died on Calvary, he made an offering, not to me, not to you, not to Adam's race. He made an offering to Almighty God, the Father. A piercing question. That's what, that was his answer. It was the right answer, of course. So they get on top of Mount Moriah. We find where Abraham does what was be expected. He builds the altar. He puts the wood on the altar, in order on the altar. He takes Isaac and he binds Isaac and lays him on the altar. Isaac is, a, is most likely around 20 years of age. My point being this. The only way that he could, this man, who's probably now oh, uh, 120 years old or so, could never have bound his son Isaac if Isaac had not been willing to be bound. So I read Psalms 40, verses 7 and 8, a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, it's written in the following book, it is, it's written of me, I come to do thy will, O Lord, for thy will is in my heart. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ came willingly. Christ came in obedience to the command of his heavenly Father. The Lord Jesus Christ, my friends, in John chapter 6, verse 38 said this. He said, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will. All he hath given me, I shall lose nothing to raise up again at the last day. The will of the Father, the will of the Son, one and the same. 1 John 5, 7, these three bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. There's never been a time when the Father and the Son were not one. And you'll see twice in this uh, narrative here in Genesis 22, twice, it says, and they went up together. The Father and Son went up together. They're together in this, even though Isaac doesn't realize at this point what's going on. But when he gets up there and his father starts to bind him and lay him on the wood, he is totally 100% submissive to the Father's will. Hope you can see that. It's the only type in the Old Testament that required a human sacrifice. All other types, all other offering sacrifices were animal sacrifices. But an animal, the animal's blood, brothering, could never redeem you from the bondage, the law of sin and death. Man transgressed God's law. It take man to satisfy God's law. And so Isaac's the man representing the man Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad there was a man named Christ Jesus? <laughs> Aren't you glad there's one meeting between God and men? The man Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ was a man. He was the son of God who became the son of man. And even though he became the son of man, he was not the son of a man. I'm the son of a man. The Lord Jesus Christ was not the son of a man, but he was the son of man. Totally, completely submissive to the Father's will. He lays him there on the altar. The Bible says he stretched forth his hand. Abraham's going through with it. But I read over here in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, where it says that God, by faith, by faith, Abraham offered up his son, his only son Isaac, accounting that God was able to raise him from the dead. For three days, in the mind of Abraham, Isaac was dead. Sure he's dead. He's right there with him, walking with him, but he's going to slay him in three days. He's good as dead. And then God sends an angel, and an angel cries from heaven. says, stay thy hand, Abraham. Do thy son no harm. And he turned and looked. The fourth time Abraham looks, 
What's he see this time? He sees a ram. And the ram's going to take the place of his son. I'm going to tell you, can you just feel and imagine what he must have felt? He's about to slay his own son and then God at the 11th hour tells him not to do it. At the 11th hour, there's a ram caught in a thicket by its horns and Abraham releases Isaac. And the ram is taken out of the thicket and laid on the altar and Isaac went free. (laughs) Tell me this morning, brother, you've been let free. (laughs) You've been released. You were on the altar. You deserved to be on the altar. The knife was to take the life of Isaac. The fire was to, to kindle the wood and burn the wood. But you will never feel the knife and never feel the wood. Because the Lord Jesus Christ took it in your room in your stead. Interesting point as we close. When Abraham came down the mountain, Isaac's not listed with him. It's the last time you hear anything about Isaac. I'm sure he came down the mountain. But it's not recorded for a reason. I'm sure he came down because Abraham said, you wait here while I and the lad go yonder and worship and return to you. I and the lad both are coming back. I'm sure he did. But according to the written word of God, there's no mention of Isaac coming back down that mountain. There came a time in Acts chapter 1 when the Lord Jesus Christ left this world. And he ascended into heaven, didn't he? You know the next time Isaac's mentioned? He's mentioned two chapters later. He's mentioned two chapters later in chapter 24. And in chapter 24 you're going to find where Isaac receives a bride. Abraham's servant is gone and got a bride and brought brought her back for Isaac. You see Isaac the next time receiving a bride in, in the Rebecca in Genesis chapter 24. The next time you see the Lord Jesus Christ, it'll be when he comes back from heaven to get his bride and take her in to glory. The Lord Jesus Christ said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he was glad of it. I'm sure he was. He saw the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw a substitute in that ram taking the place of his beloved son, the promised son, his only son. And his son was made free and his son was let go. And the ram took his place. Thank God a lamb took my place. A lamb took your place. A lamb took the place of the elect family of God. That lamb had a name. The name of that lamb was Jesus Christ.